Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Smart City Chronicles podcast. My name is Adam Beck, host of the Chronicles. Uh, my day job is Executive Director of the Smart Cities Council for Australia and New Zealand. Uh, welcome to episode 67 of the Chronicles, and this is our first video podcast. So those that are listening via a traditional podcast platform, you'll be hearing us today, but for those on our YouTube channel, You'll also be uh, seeing me and my guest, Kate Isles, in, uh, in, in 3D, in, in real time. Uh, and with that, Kate, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Adam. Thank you very much for having me. No, that's a pleasure. So, um, Kate, we've got listeners scattered all over the world, um, different sectors, different places. Some know Australia, some don't. Can you start by giving us uh, a bit of a bio? Who are you and what do you do? Sure. Um, so, Kate Isles, I'm currently director, co-director of a firm called Infinitum Partners. I've uh, been in that role for nine months now. Uh, prior to that, I have been with local government, uh, cross development assessment and also strategic planning. And prior to that, I was with the Queensland Reconstruction Authority and had a lot of work in the space of recovery and resilience, which is quite topical at the moment. Uh, but also, prior to that, I've been a private sector town planner and private sector development manager. And in my, uh, when I'm not at work, I'm at home, um, married with two kids, and also own two coffee shops, uh, which again, quite topical at this point in time, uh, given everything that's going on with COVID-19. Yeah, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to escape the COVID-19 kind of conversation these days, as, as much as we, we get into sort of technical areas. Um, I'm going to start, um, I'm going to start by throwing at you sort of just um, what, uh, what comes to mind, how are you feeling, um, particularly given, you know, your history and your previous roles with the Queensland Reconstruction Authority. I mean, uh, how are you feeling at the moment? Uh, it's interesting, I think, and across these, particularly the last couple of weeks, to be brutally honest, last week was a bit of a blur. It was, what does this all mean with the coffee shops, um, with our consultancy firm um, readjusting and, and having to be adaptive to what everyone's describing as this new normal, which I'll come back to because I think that's an interesting term. But, you know, first and foremost, the coffee shops needed to sort of get them under control. We've got one that's open, one that's closed right at this point in time, um, and trying to support the team and the staff getting through all of that. At the same time, trying to understand what all of the various announcements mean for us um, with the coffee shops, but also with the consultancy firm. What does that mean for our clients in the longer term as well? Uh, and then on the home front is um, understanding uh, with the kids in particular, one's in childcare, uh, one is uh, in school and sort of fluctuating between working uh, and looking after them and obviously being and adhering to all of the government advice. It, uh, it has been one hectic week. Um, but then over the weekend when I guess there's some better clarity around what we can and can't do, childcare stimulus, uh, better understanding of the coffee shops and their adaptability, woke up more refreshed this morning um in terms of okay no can just get on and, and get things done and to really focus in on what we can do as opposed to what we can't do i think we're all very clear around what we can't do at the moment 
but it's more around what we can do to support those businesses, to keep the family afloat. Uh, my parents are elderly. Um, they wouldn't like me saying that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, them not being able to see the grandkids in particular has been, mm. has been really difficult. Uh, lots of FaceTime. Lots of FaceTime at the moment. Yeah, a lot of... Um... Uh, a, a lot of us doing the uh, the virtual community meetups uh, as as well. Um, I had friends um, encourage me to join. Um, there's a new app called House Party or something. I think it was. Have, yeah, you, have you heard of that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was an interesting experiment. Um, okay. So um, can I, can I quickly get you to shift gears for me and put your your policy hat on? Cool. Okay. Um, what what's your uh, what, what what's your take on the, the policy environment at the moment? That the, the leadership response. You feeling good? You know, like are you gritting your teeth? What's what's your general feeling in term in terms of how we as a nation have been responding so far? Oh look, I think, and it's always one of those topics that can be. Um, uh, uh, you know, there's divergent views out there, but I think overall. I think the leadership has been very good. I think in particular, the Prime Minister put it really well, I thought the other day when he said, we will do this the Australian way. So whilst there was early on a lot, oh, we're using Singapore and we're using other examples of how we're responding. I think um, in particular, those announcements last week were very Australian, the job keeper in particular, uh, and then following on from that, childcare, I think has been very helpful across the board. I think the communication from leadership has been good. Um, I must admit though, I think like many people probably haven't been watching the news as much, but looking for those key infographics and the stats and the figures around, what does the new case look like today? What did it look like yesterday? is the curve flattening. Um, and I think some of those things uh, are helpful. Um, but then I do turn my mind to things like, and I reflect back on the Queensland Reconstruction Authority at the time, when you go back to January, 2011. And sorry, Kate, to interrupt. So for those, for those that are listening in, uh, and, and unsure what we're talking about. In January 2011, there was a uh, uh, quite an extensive weather event in in the greater sort of southeast Queensland region. Uh, our major major water catchment filled up, and we had to sort of let a, a lot of water out uh, prior to potentially losing control of of the storage and that led to combined with a whole range of other conditions in place, you know, the, the, the ground was very wet and other tributaries feeding into the Brisbane river. It all added up to a flooding of Brisbane city, you know, the third largest metropolis of the nation, uh, which was pretty impactful. So um, a quick, a quick sort of segue there, but that was, that was the January, 2019 Brisbane floods. Yeah. Yes. That's right. And um, even prior to that, though, Adam, we had cyclones up north. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what ended up being the devastating summer of 2010-11, we saw a range of different events um, that did occur. And yes, the major real event that we saw widespread, uh, we saw Yazi and then we also saw the floods 
but in particular that inland tsunami that came down from Toowoomba and hit the areas of Grantham and Helidon mm. uh, and Withcott. Uh, those images went round the world. They were they were mm. global. But what resulted in 2011 was um, it, it was unprecedented back then. But we had the entire state disaster activated under our national disaster. Um, re recovery and resistance, NDRRA, um, and that was unprecedented that we saw the entire state of Queensland declared. And uh, the then Premier Anna Bly um, was very uh, strong, will determined, showed incredible leadership with a level of empathy, um, but focus, and um, basically set up what's, what was known as the Queensland Reconstruction Authority. At the time, it was set up for, uh, I think it was three years was the initial time frame. Uh, it is still around today in 2020 and probably more important uh, now than ever as to what role it may play going forward. But I do recall you know, the authority, the functions and the role. And uh, I went into the role having been tapped on the shoulder. I think it was, I was given basically 12 hours notice to say, would you like to come over and join the Queensland Reconstruction Authority as the Director of Land Use Planning? And I remember thinking, oh, I don't even know what, what this is gonna mean. Um, but at the same time, earlier on in late 2010, I had actually been out as part of community recovery efforts in areas like Theodore. And that was the first township that was force evacuated because of the rising waters that was coming through. And I thought, well, at that time, I, it would make a lot of sense for me to take all of that effort in the recovery and being on the ground and translating that into my professional practice being a town planner and saying, well, what are we going to learn from this? How, how could we uh, or what should we be doing to ensure that these settlements and these townships, when these events do come and go, and we do, we, we know that floods and cyclones bushfires will continue um, all across the country. Uh, so what was our role? So I decided very much so to, to step into that role and pretty much the next day I walked into the what was um, the Reconstruction Authority uh, headquarters and uh, was, you know, we were setting up the Act at the time around what role the Act would have in terms of policy responses. Um, and it was a really really rewarding time in my career to be part of a myriad of um, projects that we had done at the time. And in particular, I think that there's two that's probably relevant in terms of some of the COVID-19 responses. Has, has this pandemic uh, brought about a new uh, level of understanding, appreciation, awareness around this broader idea is resiliency. I mean, I mean, in its, in its true definition, you know, resiliency is, is really sort of um, relating to any shock or stress, whether it be, you know, natural disaster, economic, social, political, you know, whatever it might be. Um, certainly Australia has had its fair share of environmental climate related, you know, disasters, shocks and stresses um, with this being a health one. A health crisis does that um is, is there is there anything different in the 
in, in the idea or the thinking that was, for example, behind the, the reconstruction authority. And I, I suppose that's the segue to maybe your, your commentary on today's announcement here in Australia around the, you know, the, the new sort of entity in the New South Wales state government called New South Wales Resiliency or Resiliency New South Wales, I believe. So, um, yeah, so talk to me about sort of the, the, the natural disasters and then sort of where we're at with this, this health sort of pandemic. Sure. So I think when we saw the, the devastating floods and the cyclones that came through, and in particular, there was a huge response from the general public around why did so many homes flood? Why was that? You know, town planners are to blame. I built above the, the 1%. I built above the 1 in 100. Just that general understanding of well, what did that actually mean? And the biggest thing that we saw at that point was um, the establishment of the Queensland Floods Commission of Inquiry. And the really interesting component of that, from my view, was the level of interrogation that was done at all different levels from the operation of the dam right through to, well, what is the land use planning? Where, where are these flood maps? Why were people building on these flood plains? And what we saw through that um, process was a lot of um, my colleagues as planners were put on the stand and they were interrogated as mm. if they were criminals. Mm. Um, and, but what we did see was, I think it was around 175 recommendations that came forward out of that uh, inquiry, of which 70% were directed at local government. A lot of that said, you need to have flood maps, you need to have a range of things. And one thing that we did at the Queensland Reconstruction Authority was we partnered with the likes of the Steve Jacobis and we looked at what data did the government hold that we could use to start helping some of the most vulnerable communities or smaller regional rural areas and provide them with at least a baseline of what their floodplains look like. So we did that for the entire state of Queensland and we delivered that as a service, if you like, mm. uh, to every single local government because we interrogated it and we found out that you know, the level of flood mapping was not consistent. Um, the response to if there was flood mapping, how visible was it? Was there a land use planning component that went through that? And so I reflect back on that time and that was when the commission's final report came out in 2012. By the time it did come out, we had completed this body of work. And then between now and 2020, we are so much better prepared for any flooding that may actually come through probably across the state, but because of that particular turn of events. So, so, now so Kate, just, so just to be clear there, the state government at the time created a, 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 a body of knowledge, a, a, a level of insight that it then passed on to and provided as a service to the hundred and whatever cities and towns across the state. Is, is, is that correct? That's right. So there was 177 at the time. Yeah. Um, and we did it across all of the major river basins. And we then went and engaged with every local government and provided them with the suite of these maps as a resource. So we used everything. Uh, you know, we sat down with the likes of Steve Jacoby and we went to understand what are the data sets that the state holds that could help us understand where does flooding occur. So we used everything from LIDAR or survey capture through to soil types. Um, and we essentially ran 
a flood model, if you like, across each of the basins, to then at least do a virtual extent or a spatial extent of if flooding was to occur, where could it occur? Now, obviously, there's refinement after refinement that can occur, but you had to start somewhere, and that's what we did. Um, so I think that was a really interesting exercise because what we've then seen is things like the state planning policy respond. And you've got, it's not just about the hazard anymore being, well, is it a 1%, is it a 2%? It's also around the risk and what's the risk appetite associated with the hazard itself. So we've seen a fundamental shift in my view around the policy response to risk as it relates to land use policy here in Queensland. And in the space of probably two or three years, um, that body of work and that uh, momentum that built up, particularly after the, the Commission's response and their recommendations, that really started to accelerate what that policy response would look like. And I think you know, Queensland's in a far better position now to actually understand that. Um, and then how do we actually adapt to that going forward? So. <laughs> there's, there's something in my mind that is very, very obvious. Well, in my mind, it's obvious, but um, doesn't doesn't that therefore put Queensland in a really good position to understand and respond to the COVID nineteen pandemic, at least from a process and data and governance perspective? Oh, I, absolutely. I think, um, I think Queensland, because of the virtue of, um, well, the state, how we're spatially set out in its own right. Um, I think also the way in which um, that we do have this body, the, the QRA that's sitting there that, that can be utilised and, and should be utilised. I think the biggest difference, though, that I see, sorry, just turn that off. Um, the biggest difference I see, though, is at this point in time, we're not sure what the end game looks like and when we're going to be in a position to understand and realise the full impact of COVID-19. You look at something like Grantham mm. and that came and went and we saw 22 lives lost. We saw those images that went global with the gates of hell where all of that debris in the car body was sitting up against the railway line. That was an event that came and went and it, as, as tragic as it was, what happened very quickly after the event was the Premier and the late Steve Jones came out very quickly with a very clear vision and that was, we wanna see some of those people in their new homes on the top of New Grantham by the end of the year. And that vision was set in February, 2011. And as the land use planners were sitting there going, okay, so if people are gonna be in houses by Christmas, we've now got to work back from that mm -hmm. vision and understand exactly what needs to be done. So the problem we've got at the moment is we don't mm -hmm. clearly understand what, what that vision needs to be. We're still trying to understand the extent of the impact, how long is the impact going to be? You know, for businesses like ours, at what point in time do you reopen? Um, do you reopen in the same way? Um, but then you also look at the policy response and I, you know, I'm minded to people like Minister Stokes who 
who quite clearly um, came out saying, you know, with the COVID-19 response at the moment, it's quite explicit around what we can't do, but planning by its nature, it's our duty to understand what we can do and what we can do now. And that's where I think we're seeing some exciting things coming forward around what we can do to help with this and in particular sort of start focusing on what the recovery may look like. We just don't know the extent of the recovery that we may need to do. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we're going to pivot into planning and plan tech and e-planning in a moment. Last one around governance and the like, the, the announcement today, Res Resiliency New South Wales, I think the new agency is, is called. Um, what, what, what went through your mind when you heard that announcement? Um, I don't think it was unexpected. I thought something like that may occur. And I, and I also think, you know, we can't forget the impact and what has happened with those bushfires. And, you know, they're the images that went, that went global. Again, not dissimilar to Grantham. There are still people who are reeling out there, particularly businesses. Mm. Um, but I think what it has done and to sort of circle back to your other question is when you look at, um, and I've done some work in the insurance space and one of the big things the insurer asks are things like, well, what's your greatest articulated risk? Now in areas like Wellington, that would be an earthquake. Mm. But then you start to look at, well, what is the greatest articulated risk? And COVID-19 seems to be doing a pretty good job of taking, yeah. of taking that taking that step. So you know, we've always we've always maintained good risk structures and plans and pandemics have always been on the cards. I just don't think any of us sort of had preempted even even your Bill Gates of the world preempted the global scale of this particular event and what and what that actually means. So the New South Wales Resilience One, I think it's great that it's called resilience. And I think that's really key that that word resilience is used. You know, the Queensland Reconstruction Authority at the time, reconstruction was important because there was a need to rebuild mm, and reconstruct. Physically, yeah, yeah. Physically. Um, but there was always this notion that it was going to take a role. And, and that was also um, because there was a time period that was put onto the authority in the first instance. But even when I was on the board of the QRA, there was a far bigger focus around the resilience and Queensland's resilience strategy and this notion of betterment. So that when these things do occur, how do we become, what the, what's the betterment part? What's the value proposition that comes through that says, well, we're just not going to allow that to occur again. So you know, not just getting money to rebuild the road back to the standard it was before the event, what can we do to actually rebuild it so it does have a level of resilience in it? So if the same event occurred, maybe it might withstand mm. that next event. Mm. And I think some of those key policies, and I, I think Shane, I think Shane's appointment, Shane Fitzsimmons' appointment to that authority is a is a good one. Talk about leadership. He, he through the bushfires, he was exceptional, mm. absolutely exceptional. Um, and I think it does mean something when there's someone in uniform. Um, we looked at Major General um, Slater, who was the first chair of the authority out there uh, in Queensland across the, his images went global as well, because he was on the ground, he was in uniform, 
and it was called Operation Queenslander. And that's how the QRA first responded with, through Operation Queenslander. Setting it up, what do these recovery plans look like? Understanding that every area had been impacted quite differently. So it wasn't just gonna be a stock standard response. And I think that's probably also what we're going to see across the board. We're already seeing stimulus packages, whether that's local government, federal or state coming through, and they're all a little bit different, but probably fundamentally they're quite similar. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, let's change tack and talk planning for a moment. So it must be, you know, in the last 10 days alone, um, I've been involved in many different conversations and webinars and discussions and dialogues. And um, I'll just throw a couple of um, sort of points and topics that stick with me in terms of I continue to hear these. There's certainly repetition here. So I hear that um, uh, things aren't going to be the same. Um, sometimes to the extent that everything's going to change. Um, I, 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 I hear questions being asked, really interesting ones. You know, what does land use look like after this? You know, a lot of people think it's, it's a health and it's an economic issue, but, but what does land use look like? And I think, I think that stems from, in part, we pretty much got the whole nation teleworking at the moment. You know, um, a lot of people uh, are working geographically in places they are not normally used to each day, you know, at home, potentially in suburban settings. Um, that uh, a, lot of the, uh, a, a lot of the conversation for me has been, you know, the, 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 the city centre or the downtown is quite dead, but the suburbs are thriving, the local coffee shop. So there's this really interesting kind of um, ball of issues around small business, uh, neighbourhoods, the suburbs, uh, working from home, um, uh, mobility, public transportation, you know, a whole, whole bunch of issues, real good, solid planning kind of issues. Um, so that's the, that's the introduction to my question. And the question is, um, from one planet to another, uh, although I haven't practiced for a long time, what's going to change when we get out of this, what's going to change? Oh, it's been mulling around for some time. And look, I don't, I don't think that there's anyone who's got a crystal ball. But what I can say is that um, not only do I think things will change, I think things have to change. Mm. Um, I, I don't think it's about what the new normal is. I just think there'll be areas like basic things. So people who have got big offices in the CBD and they're going, hang on, half of my workforce can work from home. It's productive. So my lease is going to come up and I want half the space. Mm. Um, it's then the practicalities of you know, <laughs> the work from home, I think is an interesting one and we can come back to that. But the way in which um, you know, everyone's saying what's actually happening in the suburbs. And I think that will, I think that will be interesting going, going forward. And, you know, I, I'm loving the fact that, we're in a home and we're right next to um, the, local, the local shops and um, we're down there pretty much every day buying the loaf of bread. And, um, but we're also probably feeling like we have to buy it locally because mm. there's, there's sort of this 
um, push on for supporting local. I think that there is a bit of a push away from the big boys. Um, and I think, and a lot of people are saying this, is that it's taken this type of event to see um, people support locally because they feel now obligated to support locally. Um, you're also saying you're also seeing things like, and I think the Queensland response in particular around uh, manufacturing and the supply chains is a really interesting one too. The adaptability of those businesses from you know, our favourite, the the Bundaberg Distillery, doing all of the ethanol for the hand sanitizer to the local Fonzie Abbott doing exactly the same thing, uh, to businesses just having to move so quickly. Um, you know the areas right near you, um, which have only just opened up, those great new restaurants that are now all closed, but they've gone bang straight into takeaway. Um, and yes, they've laid off staff, but they have been adapted. So I think that there's just gonna be a fundamental change in particular around how restaurants and bars and others use their space. Um, you know, do they have to have that such a big area anymore? Probably not. Um, speaking to some of the local restaurants, they say, actually, we're doing okay. Mm. But the level of support has been what supported them. And I then wonder how long can that level of support last? I mean, I think we all feel a little bit obligated at the moment to continue to spend locally. But at a point in time, that will start to start to run out in terms of the willingness to do so, but also I just think people are going to be far more frugal around their own spending and we're going to start to probably realise what do we actually really need. Um, I think it's going to fundamentally change retail um, and I think the biggest people who are going to be affected are probably commercial and retail in a tenancy sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I no doubt imagine that in the long the long list and portfolio of various stimulus or stimuli that are going to come through and continue to come through from our government and other governments around the world. Um, there'll be that moment. Uh, and I've heard little murmurings of this. Um, you know, when we, when we, you know, the, there's, there's the instant sort of hemorrhaging that we need to stop, you know, instant relief sort of pivot adapt. Um, then there's sort of the rebuild, right. And the recovery, um, I've heard that um, what can be the role of, of infrastructure? Can we bring the pipeline forward, right? Because it's all about stimulus and, and, you know, jobs and, you know, moving money through the economy. So <clears throat> this, um, this sort of really leads us to um, what I've been reading over the last few weeks in terms of building a greater efficiency um, in our planning process. It's interesting watching the cities, right? A lot of the, a lot of the um, city responses and packages of support I've noticed from city to city have kind of been a loosening of red tape or waiving of fees, you know, real low hanging fruit. Um, so I, I, I just, uh, I just wonder now this um, in particular, this, this sort of concept and approach of, of e-planning being a, uh, a way in which we can, well, 
in some senses, it's a no-brainer. But just put that aside for a moment. You know, some are, are still not doing it, um, and maybe need to be convinced. But um, th- this this whole uh, world we're living in at the moment is kind of demanding efficiency, isn't it? And I think it's certainly highlighting uh, the the silly things maybe that we we're doing in the past that we didn't realise the really in, in, inefficient things, um, and and planning is kind of the gatekeeper to the city right in a lot of ways in terms of you can't do this you can do that you can do this only based on that what does um what what does our rebuild look like for planning the role of e-planning in in helping us you know sort of build back you know more thriving communities and cities um Look, I think that there is going. There is a significant window of opportunity um, right here, right now, across both state and local governments. Um, we've written a couple of pieces already on this because we do feel um, that you know it's always been around right development, right location, but there's also an element in particular now that relates to the right time mm. and there's everything from your low hanging fruit. And this is the opportunity to say, well, why is that even in the system? Mm. Why is that even triggering an application? And I harp on this because, you know, I can, I'm in Queensland, but I look at New South Wales and I go, why is a skylight in a townhouse essentially triggering what we would say is an impact accessible application here in Queensland? No, it's, it's probably adding at least 25, if not 30 grand to a process that's to put a skylight into a townhouse. But then you, you, you take that same analogy and you push it all the way through mm. and you say, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm one for um, the appropriate community engagement and that is so important. But what we now need to work out is that balancement and this sort of starts to talk to the piece around the vision, around what does this look like afterwards? Is there a vision that this is around jobs, employment, And is that the key piece of this resilience that we're going to go through? Is it continuity? We're seeing various people respond around continuity, whether that's um, relaxing uh, construction hours in New South Wales, Mm. Uh, but you're seeing other areas across the globe that are in full lockdown. So construction activity isn't happening. Um, We're seeing, uh, you know, some councils come out saying, we want to see some stimulus around certain types of development. And then we start to say, well, what does that certain type of development look like? So I think there's ways in which people can rip that bandaid off very quickly and go, okay, here's the opportunity. But the opportunity in my view, isn't just to rip it off because we just want to fast track stuff. It's to rip it off to ensure that we are value adding to that policy process. And this is where I get excited as a planner to go back to the, the first principles of planning. And it's it's not just about you know the pub test or what we would say is the career mail test, you know, the development on the front page of the paper, does that does that work or not work? It's, you know, is it something that I would be happy for my grandma to come and visit because I had my stamp on that? Um, I think we need to approach this very pragmatically, but still do it like Grantham, you kind of need to act relatively swiftly. And 80% of the time, we will get this right. And the other 20%, well, it's COVID-19. We're all dealing with something Mm. that's completely unprecedented. Mm. But if we can come up with the criteria for 80% of the things and start 
And it's not just about fast tracking that because you still want the efficiency, you still want the transparency, and you still very much want integrity and accountability as part of this process. But you've got a private sector who is struggling. You've got public sector who, you know, capacity may be deterred because we're doing the delivering of the recovery, uh, sorry, or the response at the moment, dealing with response. But here's the opportunity. I mean, I look at local governments across the board and you just look at their budgets. And I don't think I've, I don't think I've seen one stimulus that hasn't talked about rates freeze mm. or rates rebate or deferral or whatever it might be. So local governments are going to need to look at what their sources of revenue will be. Now, in the majority of circumstances, your second highest, your revenue comes through construction and development. That's the application fees for it. And then it's the infrastructure charges and also the donated assets that will come through. Mm. So it doesn't surprise me that, you know, you're seeing Minister Stokes announce the accelerated planning system. And I, and I think that's a good thing. I do think, though, that this is sort of comes to that e-planning piece is that there are already platforms and there's a myriad of platforms already out there that could be utilized to self-serve this process. If you can come up with a criteria relatively quickly, get that into the system, use the private sector to come through, instead of having you know, 25 odd development controls for certain types of development, you bring that down to the six that really matter. And if it meets car parking heights, setbacks, the things that probably matter to the community members the most, then surely we should be able to push it through and go, right, here's your decision, you're good to go. And again, I know that sounds probably fairly simplistic, but there are ways in which we can do this. And I think e-planning as an enabler of that, um, and it's about facilitation, not regulation right now, um, but you've got to facilitate right development, right location, and is it the right time for that type of development? And I, you know, I'd hazard a guess there's not, not too many that wouldn't fit that boat. But this isn't about people trying to game the system right now about rezonings or whatever it might be. There's got to probably be another suite of criteria that, that those sorts of projects could go through a, you know, a separate vetting type process. But I think the focus on that's really important. Is there going to be a tension between you know, as you, as you've alerted, you know, raising revenue and, and building greater efficiency into the system. I mean, can you, oh, I, I think it's clearly, and I, I agree with you. I think it's going to be very clear that coming out of this and getting through this, we're still in it, of course, that doing more with less is going to become the mantra surely. Um, so um, I would, I'd imagine that, there must be a number of cities, you know, running the numbers on, on where, where the lost revenue is going to be or, you know, where they can sort of be innovative and make that up. I mean, what goes, I mean, if, if you were back in government, local government, you know, what would be the things rattling around in your mind to try and, you know, optimize that, that sort of dilemma or, or tension? Yeah, I, I think there's a, we'd need to, I think everyone needs to be careful around, understanding the decisions that are being made now won't be paid for in the next two years, three years, mm. it'll be five to 10 years. So whilst councils, and I would, I would hope, and I would imagine the majority of them are doing those and running those numbers. Importantly here in Queensland, we've, we're just coming out of local government elections. Most of those haven't been declared yet. 
entering into a budget cycle where there is an immediate feeling of I need to support our community and don't get me wrong I, I'm all for that but local government is only one player in this space yeah so if on one hand we're looking at uh, development application fee reductions or infrastructure charges reductions how does that actually work in with what the state might do around uh, land tax and relief on land tax it's got to be a coming together of all of these so that the levers that local government can pull are working in song with whether it's state, whether it's with federal, so that it does actually have a meaningful impact. But we can't waive everything because the long-term financial position of a local government, of a state government, you know, it will be our kids who will ultimately be paying for this. Uh, so we want to set it up so that, yeah, sure, there's some, there's some stimulus, but this is also around that long-term financial sustainability as we move towards what this long-term resilience may look like. Because who knows when a COVID-20 or when another cyclone or something, you know, another devastating impact might come through. Um, going back through droughts, um, you know, the, the role of climate change going forward and it being back on the table, um, but also moving towards a more renewable future. And that's where I think the other exciting component comes through. And so, you know, if I was back in local government, I would be very seriously considering uh, my own assets, um, the role that they could play in stimulating this. I know that there's been um, in the past this sort of notion of you can't sell off assets um, and that, you know, and you've got to be careful around that. Don't get me wrong again. Um, but at the same time, he, here is this unprecedented moment. So if there is an underlying government assets that's sitting there and it can be used to part stimulate and ensure because there'll be continued to be downward pressure on rates but at some point something's going to have to pay so either rates are going to go up or your revenue stream needs to come in from elsewhere and majority of that will come from development and construction uh, but it can also come from re-looking at assets uh, the role that the assets might play um, the leasing of those assets the licensing or or ultimately the disposal of those assets. So you know, if I was advising local government, I'd be very clearly looking at that. Um, and then I think it would be around a lot of those tax reliefs, but uh, some councils are financially very strong. Majority of them were already sitting pretty close to the line in any event. So I think it's going to take some real collaboration across the board, not just local and state, but also federally to ensure what does this look like long-term financially? Yeah. And, and on that, on that point, um, you know, small, small business for, for Australia and I, I would imagine elsewhere around the world, you know, small businesses, just such a, uh, a significant, significant contributor to, you know, national, uh, the national economy. Um, it, it's a really interesting one. There's kind of a, um, there's kind of a data set that seems to continue to elude local government. Um, it's coming through in a survey that we're doing at the moment and a number of conversations has certainly uh, identified this as an issue, which is um, we, we don't know what businesses are closing down and where, right? In any sense of kind of real time. Um, and 
that that would be really useful data right around about now when we're trying to craft stimulus and support packages and, and, and things like that. How, um, just, just on that one, you know, as, as a planner, I mean, how, how might we overcome that one? How might we learn and, and get, or, or there's probably still time. I mean, we still don't have a vaccine for this thing, so we don't know how long small business is going to be impacted, but, but, I mean, if, if, you know, if the mayor was to come along to you, you were still in local government and said, I want to know how many and where local business is, is shutting down. Sort that one for me, Kate, where, where do you kind of start, start the, the, the process? Well, um, it's interesting because I was only talking about this to someone the other day, Adam, because with our two coffee shops, the only person who would know which one's open, which one's closed who we've um, let off, who we've kept on board, have we gone for job keeper or are they on job seeker would be our accountant. Yeah. Um, and so uh, there's, there's a range of things, you know, people are sort of thinking around, well, what are the platforms that people are using to do their books? Um, I think it's QuickBooks and um, the other accounts. Zero or something. Yeah. Zero, yeah. Yeah. zero to see you know, what sort of data has been held there. But uh, I think they're, and look, it, it may come through with the job keeper as well, um, whether there was just a few other questions that could be asked when people were registering for that. Uh, you know, there's over 350,000 businesses that have registered for job keeper. Wow. But just to understand, well, are you applying? Are you still open? Yes or no? If you are, how many staff? Uh, it, what does the operations look like? Oh, and by the way, I noticed that you're a restaurant. Are you now just doing takeaway only? Mm. So I think... I think there will be a catalogue of that, but then you come back down to, well, you know, in my local um, area here in Albion, I go, well, I know that that one's open, but they are doing this differently. And it's really just sort of um, walking the pavement. Yeah. And you kind of, you know, if I was in uh, local government and I do know that, you know, majority are working from home, it's still an essential service. Um, you know, adhering to social distancing is, you know, deploying a team. And again, I reflect back on the QRA and we, at the QRA, we developed the rapid, assess, uh, rapid damage assessment program, which was on a handheld device. You could go out and you were basically traffic lighting um, the level of damage for a particular house, uh, whether that was um, cyclone, whether it was flood. Okay, well, it was flooded. Is it still being able to be occupied? No. If what's the severity? And this system was then able to be um, revisited on a weekly or a monthly basis so mm. that we kind of knew um, at what point in time, and it's now been deployed ever since it was um, sort of constructed back in 2012, go out rapidly and then you know, people have got the numbers for the press conferences. And we know that, you know, 20 homes were uh, currently uninhabited because the flood level came up um, above the, the electrical system, something like that. Um, but yeah, I'm also looking at the range of businesses that are just, um, uh, who are adapting. And, you know, I look at the valuers, for instance, and I saw Heron Todd White the other day and how they've deployed this um, new platform that they're using so that, um, people, uh, their valuers are just going to the outside of the property, but the residents inside are able to essentially go around and video the room and, and have clear instructions around what to do. Um, an app that's deployed, that could be deployed out to businesses to very quickly say, well, and, and by the way, how are you going? Um, mm. 
the other big thing is people have just been trying to understand my case study looks like this. I'm a hairdresser and I've got, you know, I'm, I'm the owner or I've got uh, two employees there full time. I've got one part time and then I've got eight casual. Uh, four of those have been with me for 12 months, but the other four haven't. Can someone please try and explain to me quite easily what does this all mean to me? Um, but everyone is grappling with this. And I think, you know, they're saying a lot of people are at the front line at the moment that you know, accountants are probably at yeah. the most front line at the yeah. moment. Yeah. They're working around the clock to try and grapple with this, to get the buzz in so that people are getting this instant relief. But, um, you know, small business is, is going to suffer uh, and it has suffered enormously, but you know, I'm buoyed by, how many people have you know, very quickly pivoted their business um, models and you know, a lot of them are coming going, no, we need to continue on and we'll soldier on. And I'm loving seeing people sold out. Um, yeah. But I just don't think that that's sustainable. No. In the long term, it won't be. No. So last question, Kate, what, uh, this question used to be a straightforward one. It's a little bit challenging to answer. Now I used to say, um, what are you excited about over the next 12 months? Um, so what, 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 what can you, what can you tell me about the next sort of 10 to 12 months? What, what are you, is there something you're looking forward to? Can we, you know, <laughs> for, so, you know, glass half full, you know? Oh, look, I think even when, even when we first started seeing COVID and, I'm probably in a little bit of a unique position because I have a brother, sister-in-law and family who live in Seoul in South Korea. So I'm seeing Seoul, you know, really returning to businesses as usual, as, as usual as it could have been social distancing, everything's still being adhered to. Um, the cherry blossoms have just come out and, uh, there and you're starting to see economic reports coming through around markets improving in a range of things. So I'm optimistic because I have that particular lens. I'm also optimistic because I think Australia by its nature of being an island and everything that we've put into place, I'm buoyed by the fact that we haven't been placed into a full lockdown. I, I'm, I like the fact that there has been an element and an undercurrent of you've got to be careful what you wish for and um and that there's this element of we need to keep the economy driving and i think because we've done that we have actually been able to see businesses adapt and adapt very quickly to what it is that they can do to continue to keep people employed but to go oh hang on here's an opportunity for me to be challenged and to try something that i didn't think well i actually i was going to try it but i was going to try it in probably 12 or 18 months time and I think the same thing resonates for our profession as planners and planners contributing to COVID and the response. I think we've talked about planning and disruption around planning, oh, I don't know, for yeah. probably a decade now, Adam. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, that, it's the blockbuster, it's the Kodak. Um, yeah. And I think what I'm really excited about is is the e-planning journey and technology providing and supporting the solution to enable planners to be planners, um, to concentrate on being planners rather than being regulators, using the technology to support the decision-making process, 
to bring forward efficiency, but to also allow 24 seven connection. And I think that's the big thing is that we're still sitting in PDFs. We're not sitting in an interactive environment. We're not, um, you know, some people are better than others. Don't get me wrong. They, they certainly are, but you know, a really easy thing like the floodplain maps would be to see e-planning um, lead the way and for planning schemes to be put online and for development assessment processes from the e-lodgement all the way through, I think there's a huge opportunity. And if in 12 months time we're having this conversation and e-planning hasn't been front and center of this response, then I will be deeply disappointed. And I also don't think that we, um, as people who are in these sorts of roles are not championing, um, I think we will be doing a very big disservice to ourselves, to the profession, and then more broadly to the community. I was reminded um, of our last episode, the interview I did with Neil Glentworth. I asked him a, uh, a question around, you know, who, who needs to sort of take, take leadership responsibilities sort of for all these things that we want done. And he just said, uh, you, Adam, you know, it, it starts with you, you know, you, you got to get that done. So, so Kate, we got to, we got to commit that we'll make that happen. Um, but for, but for now, we're going to, we're going to sort of wrap it up there. Thanks. Um, thanks so much for, for joining us. Um, no doubt the next little while medium term is, is going to be of, of strong interest to you professionally, but also um, as a small business owner and um, you know, a, a parent as well. But um, thanks for carving out some time in your diary today and um, joining me on the, on the Chronicles podcast. So, uh, folks, that was our guest, Kate Isle. She's a direct, one of the directors at Infinite and Partners uh, based here in Brisbane, a planner. Also, um, as you heard, uh, extensive knowledge with, uh, with rebuilding, reconstruction and all things uh, bouncing forward after uh, shock and stress. For those that aren't subscribing to The Chronicles, you can do so. Head to whatever platform it is that you go to, the place, Spotify, iTunes. We'll be there. Just look up the Smart Cities Chronicles. You can also head to our website, smartcitieschronicles.com. All our episodes are there. Until uh, next episode, uh, keep well, stay, uh, stay healthy, and we look forward to bringing another episode shortly.